Hello out there, I'm Dan Roberts, and today we're going to take some time to give the small things underfoot one more think. So before I start, I should explain the lack of episodes over the past few weeks. It's what It was my intention to make an episode every week, but since about mid-June, my life has gotten more complicated than I had anticipated. These episodes usually take me about four hours to make, which isn't a lot of time, but I have been missing that time for a while now, and the missed episodes are the result of that. And that's not to complain. I've had a lot of fun stuff going on, including a trip to Europe, a trip to the Rockies, and lots of other summer break type fun with my family. And those are the best kind of problems I can imagine happening, but I do apologize for missing these past several weeks, especially for doing so without warning. One of the great things that's happened over the last few weeks is that my family adopted a puppy. She was about eight weeks old when we adopted her, and our best guess is that she is a lab boxer mix. She's black on top with a white belly, and she's completely adorable. She has a really sweet personality, and um, the boys decided to name her Zelda, and she's very much an affectionate people person. Uh, she walks around the house and wants to be right next to us, so much so that it's become a problem. We keep accidentally knocking her over or kicking her, stepping on her toes when we're walking around. And it was this phenomenon that brought today's topic to mind. This adorable little puppy keeps getting accidentally hurt by us, mostly because we don't see her, because she's still pretty small and because we aren't used to having her around yet. A few days ago, my youngest son sat down right on top of her because she blended into our black couch. My oldest son has tripped on her several times, and my wife and I have sent her skidding across the wooden floors on a couple occasions simply because we came around a corner too quickly without looking, and she happened to be there. Now, this poor little puppy has taken all of this in stride and continues to be as cheerful and as sweet as ever, but she is perhaps growing a little bit more cautious around walking humans. All of this has made me ponder the situation a little deeper and has made me wonder how many times I have been guilty of this same kind of behavior in my human-to-human -human interactions. How many times have I caused... Maybe not harm, but certainly distress or upset to people in my life through my casual, unintentional movements, maybe without even noticing that the other people were there to be hurt. How many times have I unknowingly or accidentally sent someone spinning or tumbling just by moving through the world? And as I started thinking about this, I remembered a great experience that I had when I was a teenager. See, in, in the... Rocky Mountains, where I grew up, in the high deserts, there's a kind of dirt that is greenish gray and bumpy, kind of a, has a crust on it. It's called cryptobiotic soil, and it's very prevalent, especially in the national parks, like in Zion National Park and Arches. The soil is actually a composite latticework, and I'm no uh, microbiologist to be an expert on, on this stuff, but I found it fascinating when I learned about it. It's a combination of algae and other single-celled organisms that form a latticework inside the soil, 
And this lattice work holds down the otherwise very sandy soil so that it doesn't erode. And it also stores water. It creates kind of a sponge on top of the soil. And because that lattice work holds water, plant life can much more readily get a foothold uh, and put down roots into that soil. So everywhere this cryptobiotic soil forms, the entire ecosystem benefits and thrives from the most simple, most basic of organisms. And as these algae and bacteria grow and move about through the soil, they leave behind filaments, uh, crystallized tubules that create this crusted sponge form. And it takes hundreds of years sometimes for these little bumpy soil patches to, to establish and grow. But they're incredibly delicate and can be completely destroyed. 50 years, 100 years of biological work that is beneficial to everything around it can be absolutely destroyed in a second by a single casual footstep. Now, how did I learn about cryptobiotic soil? I was in Zion National Park, walking around, taking in the sights, and I strayed off the path and took a step as I was looking up at some beautiful red rock formations, massive, gorgeous cliffs. I took a step into the dirt and felt the soil crunch underneath me. It felt different than any other dirt I had walked on. And I looked down and recognized that I had left a very clear and obvious footprint in the otherwise brown and crusted dirt around me. And when I picked my foot up, that brown crusted dirt was completely gone. And it was only the red sandy soil underneath in my footprint. And someone who was out there with us quickly called out to me and said, no, 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 don't walk there. Don't walk there. That's special dirt to which I thought was funny at the time. But then they explained to me that that dirt takes hundreds of years to grow. And it's very special and important to the ecosystem. And I just accidentally, casually destroyed it. It didn't really hit me at the time, but it's since kind of broken my heart that I carelessly caused that much harm. I think we probably all do this accidentally, unintentionally hurt things around us simply because we are situationally large and we are coming into contact with things that are situationally smaller than us. I know that when I was directing a, a behavioral health clinic, I was very cognizant and I tried to be very cognizant of the fact that my simple statements, my off-the-cuff remarks could leave very harmful, unintentional after effects. Now, obviously, we can't prevent this. There's, uh, there, there is no end of opportunities for people who want to be offended to be offended. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we need to never cause offense. However, the entire world is benefited when we move through it more carefully. Because on the other hand, I know that there have been many times that people have casually or unintentionally harmed me and they may not have even known I was in the room when they did it. This all leads me to think about differences in emotional size and how this emotional size or mass is decided upon. 
My own children and my wife have an enormous emotional size in my life, and the little movements they make can send me spinning with ease. But there are other people who have less emotional size. They can directly attack me, and it doesn't really make an impact at all. If a stranger on the freeway gives me the bird, I'll probably just think it's funny because they're emotionally tiny to me. But if my wife rolls her eyes at the wrong time or for the wrong reason, that might send me spinning because she's emotionally gigantic in my life. She is the sun of my solar system and her every rumble has percussions. But if a moon of Pluto explodes, I'll probably never even notice. So how do we recognize our potential to accidentally hurt or upset other people? How do we recognize our emotional size in the eyes of someone else? And as therapists, what can we do to account for this kind of unintended and possibly unnoticed damage, both done and received? How careful do we need to be? Is it our job to avoid all harm at all costs? Is that even possible? And if not all harm, how do we avoid as much harm as possible? And how careful is that? I think of an instance when I was, uh, when I was a clinic director where I was at a staff meeting and it was required of us to go through productivity numbers, outcomes numbers. It's nobody's favorite activity. A lot of people find them embarrassing to have their productivity numbers put up on display. It's something like the test results in a college course being posted on the outside of the professor's doors so that everyone can see what score you got on the test. For those who did really well, it's a chance to, you know, strut around and probably a really proud moment, a little chest thumping involved. But for those who did not do well, it's kind of like a public shaming. And while I always tried to keep the public shaming element to a minimum, it was nonetheless inherent in the activity. So while I was doing this presentation to the staff, I made the offhand comment that this is going to be about as much fun as a rectal exam. But we have to do it, so let's get through it. One of the staff members took offense to that phrase and thought it was sexually inappropriate, thought it was creating a toxic work environment. And she lodged a formal complaint against me. Now, I'm of, I'm of two minds about that. On the one hand, there's nothing sexual about rectal exam. And someone who takes offense to a medical terminology while working at a medical clinic is really off base and is hypersensitive and looking to find offense. So on the one hand, I don't really take her complaint seriously. I think it's laughable. But on the other hand, it is my job as chief to make the working environment comfortable and enjoyable for everyone. Everyone needs to be seen and heard. Everyone needs to feel respected. So I took a lesson to heart, right? I now in professional meetings, I avoid any and all mention of body parts that are not hands or feet or face. <laughs> I try to be more careful around that. Not because I think she was right, but because I recognize that she was offended. And it doesn't matter if she was right. 
My job is to avoid offense whenever possible, especially in a leadership or power position, because she probably saw herself as being very small in that meeting, and she felt stepped on. I didn't know she was stepped on until afterwards when I heard the complaint. To this day, I still think she was wrong and kind of silly to be offended by that language. But I was also wrong and kind of silly to use language that was so easily offensive. As a therapist, it is my job to remain aware of the impact I have on others, especially my patients. It is my job to exercise skills in empathy, to intentionally try to view the world from the eyes of another person. It is important as a therapist and anyone who's trying to offer help to someone who's suffering, it is important to remember the skill of using I statements, of not claiming things are a certain way in the world, but rather acknowledge that I simply see them that way, that I feel like something someone said is offensive, as opposed to saying what you said is offensive. That's an important difference. If I recognize and I own the fact that the offense comes from me, it is within me, not created by someone else, then that other person won't have the recourse to the natural argument, which is to say, I never said anything offensive or I never meant to offend you. That's not where the offense came from. It came from within me. And when I can acknowledge that, when I can own it myself, then the conversation had about that offense is much deeper and richer and more useful. As a therapist, I quite often will challenge my clients. And it's only effective if I recognize that the challenge comes from my own perception of them as opposed to something that they did. If I have a client who no-shows multiple appointments and wastes my time and money and energy, it's bothersome. And when I challenge my clients on that, I will tell them, for instance, you know, sir, of your last five appointments, you've missed three of them without canceling. And I feel like I need to be honest with you. When you miss appointments, I feel like therapy isn't important to you. And I feel like you don't respect my time. What are your thoughts about that? I want to make sure that we understand each other and that I'm not misinterpreting what's going on. Now, that doesn't always go over well. Some people are going to take offense no matter what you say. But I feel like when I make the effort of approaching a problem that way, of owning it at my level and asking for clarification, at least I've done everything that I can do to avoid the offense and still solve the problem. It's also important in the after effect. After you've had an interaction with somebody that might or might not have been offensive, to check in with them. At the end of a therapy session, I'll ask questions like, how has this session been for you? What have I done that wasn't comfortable or that you didn't like? As a therapist, I need to never forget the value of open-ended exploratory questions so that I can get a better understanding of what my patient is going through. And on a general level, when you're trying to help someone or trying to understand someone, open-ended questions are so much more helpful and useful than closed questions. To ask someone, 
what is your experience like? Or what is that like for you? Or help me understand what you're going through. Is so much better than a closed-ended question like, do you have a problem? Or is there something wrong with you? Or anything that can be answered with a one or two word response. It's a simple skill, massively impactful. It elicits responses that help us gain understanding. Now, sometimes we can't gain understanding from an explanation. I can't ask my puppy to explain to me what it's like to be her. And I don't think I'll ever know what it's like to be an eight inch tall puppy. But I can imagine it. I can empathize. And I imagine it must be terrifying, all those gigantic legs and massive feet swinging by at ridiculous speeds. Walking across the room for her must be like crossing a busy freeway for me. So if she can't explain herself to me, or if she isn't available to explain herself to me, then I can take time to wonder what it must be like. How must the others see the world and me inside that world? Who am I to them? What is my power differential to them? How big am I in their world, even if they are very small in mine? As I think about it, celebrities probably have to deal with this. They have fans who hang on their every move. And as such, their every little move is capable of knocking people for a loop. I used to be a big fan of Bill Cosby. I was raised on his stand-up comedy albums and listened to them as often as my parents let me. So when it came out that he was a rapist, I was completely stunned and had something of a, of a mini existential crisis. Suddenly those innocent memories of laughing while I listened to his funny stories became tainted and dirty. And I hated him for that. I hate him for ruining that for me, for taking those innocent memories and making them dirty. And I'm not the victim of any of Bill Cosby's crimes, but his crimes have impacted me nonetheless on a personal level. He took those innocent memories and made them dirty. And Bill Cosby's never even heard of me, doesn't even know I, I exist. And yet he sent me for a loop. And the same is also true of Robin Williams. I was a huge fan of Robin Williams. I loved everything he was in. Found him to be incredibly talented and wonderfully funny, just clever, bright, and full of life. And for him to end his own life for, now I'll never know what he was going through, but his death was a personal loss to me. And he did not know that I existed. And there's another story just like that that's come up in recent time. A few very wealthy individuals have taken it upon themselves to become space tourists. And while I'm sure that is a wonderfully exciting thing to do, there are others who are of the opinion that those millions of dollars to send tourists into space could have otherwise been spent doing much better things to help other people out. The way they spent their money was not malice, 
But to many, it seemed excessive and careless and thoughtless when so much else could have been done with it. I heard somebody commenting that rather than spending billions of dollars sending tourists into space, could we not take that same billion dollars and send tourists to a third world country where they could improve the infrastructure around a village and bless thousands of lives? And would not those tourists who went and saved so many lives and made such a huge impact not come away with an amazing memory anyway? I think they probably would. And there is inherently something moralistic about the way we spend our money, but that's not the scope of this podcast. I simply bring that up to highlight the fact that these very wealthy individuals chose to spend their money how they spent it. And the way they spent their money has had an impact on many people for good and ill. Some are inspired to be space tourists themselves, start businesses and and grow their own economic futures. And other people are disgusted and deeply offended. It is important for us all to be aware of the collateral damage of our movement. And that does not mean we should not move, but it does mean we should move carefully. I'm a big guy, above average in height and weight, and very easily capable of accidentally knocking people over, hurting them. And as such, I've developed what's almost a neurotic tick, I guess. I don't come around corners quickly. I will always slow down when I come around a corner. Because too many times in my life, I've walked around a corner quickly and knocked into someone and barely even registered the impact, but sent them either to their knees or knocked them over sent them staggering. And that's a bad feeling. I feel like an ox lumbering around. I didn't I don't like the way that feels, so I've learned to be careful in my movement. And all of us, regardless of your physical size, have that same ability emotionally to knock somebody over without even knowing that we do. This happens romantically all the time, I think. There was a girl I I went into a I, I was in a ballroom dancing class and there was a girl that was one of my partners and I was, I danced with her maybe for a grand total of, of an hour and a half and she enchanted me in that time. And after the dance, I asked, after the dance class was over, I naively thought that our time spent dancing in a class might have created some kind of connection between us and I invited her to come over to my house and hang out on the weekend and she never returned the phone call. So I felt really slighted and jaded. My attraction to her made her very large in my eyes and I must have been small in hers. Not hurt. But... It's, prob- it's not her fault. It's certainly not something she did out of malice. So the moral of the story is this. right? I think uh, to sum it all up and to end my ramblings on the topic, it's not ever going to be completely avoidable that we hurt the things around us that are smaller than us. But that extra degree of attention 
of focus, of intentionality, can keep that harm to a minimum and can keep that harm repairable. Because if you're careful to notice that you have knocked over something small in your life, that you have stepped on someone's toes, if you are careful and recognize that you are capable of that kind of unintended damage, then you will always be in a footing where you can recognize it, apologize it, and try to fix it quickly. Rather than running over someone roughshod, never even knowing they were there, and therefore never attempting to repair the damage. It is not possible to prevent damage entirely, but I like to think that it is possible to repair everything we break on a human level. It takes time and energy and focus, but it is certainly doable. And the doing of it, the repairing of this accidental damage is what makes for healthy, stable, growing relationships. I know that I'm going to hurt my wife and my kids and my dog. But as long as I recognize that I've hurt them and do my best to repair the damage, then they still know that I love them. And they know that the hurt and the pain was not what I intended. Well, okay. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for your suggestions and your feedback. It's very much appreciated. This has been One More Think. I'm Dan Roberts. Thanks for joining me. Let's take care of each other. Mm-hmm.